Now, I noticed a pattern in my life that started very early on, even as a little girl. And the pattern is that it's never enough. No matter what I do, it's never enough. No matter what I have and no matter what I accumulate, it's never enough. No matter what I hear people think about me, it's never good enough. There was this feeling and this sense as early back as I can remember of I need to do more, I need to be more, I need to have more. Now, here's what I know without reading your diary, and that is that you also know what this feeling is like. You have experienced it and you continue to experience it to varying degrees, even those of you who are joining us online today. And the reason I'm so confident of this is that we continue to sing songs about this very thing. No matter what generation we grew up in and no matter what genre of music we enjoy, we sing songs about this feeling of I need more and I want it all and I want it now. So I want to know if you recognize any of these songs, um, if any of you are fans of these. So let's play the first one. I want it all. I want it all. want it to keep going, right? Like, we're just going to rock out this morning to some queen. Uh, now, if that one didn't totally resonate with you, uh, let's hear this genre. Now, I am too old, believe it or not, to have been a fan of High School Musical, and my kids are too young to have grown up with High School Musical, but I was a youth pastor when that show came out, and so we've got... Hard Rock, we've got Disney, and then I don't want to leave some of you out, so let's play the third one. There's gotta be something more, gotta be more than this. I need a little less hard time, I need a little more bliss. Now, last service, everybody was really excited about the country music song. I didn't see nearly as many of you excited about that one, but we do live in Temecula, and you would think that there would be no country music fans in Southern California, but they are here, and ironically, I am married to one. So I grew up in Alabama. I don't listen to country music, although I do appreciate Sugarland. My husband, though, has become a country music fan in the last few years, and so it's kind of funny the way that that worked out, but the point is, we know what this feeling is like. We know what it's like to have this focus in our life because we write songs about it and we sing songs about it. And no matter what generation we are from, no matter what genre of music we enjoy and we rock out to, whether you're a high school musical fan or a Queen fan or a Sugarland fan, there is this part of us deep within us that believes to varying degrees that I am what I do and I am what I have and I am what others think about me. And there are consequences when we have this focus in our life. You see, we have been teaching over the last several weeks that our focus matters. And so we're gonna take a look today at how Jesus experienced those temptations of I am what I do, I am what I have, I am what others think of me, and we're gonna take a look at how he shifted his focus onto something different. You know, the verse we've been looking at together is from Matthew chapter six, where it says the eye, the focus, is the lamp of the body. 
And if your eyes are healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body is full of darkness. And when I sense those beliefs creep up, when I sense my focus has shifted onto sensing and believing and trusting that I am what I do and I am what I have and I am what others think about me, I experience my life get a bit darker. It's like the light gets sucked out of me and out of my life and out of my relationships. I know exactly what this is like. And I wanna share a story with you this morning that I think illustrates this in a big way. Several years ago, I had the privilege of hanging out with a woman named Sheila Walsh. Uh, one woman last service was like, I've done her Bible studies. She's an author and a speaker. And what I didn't know at the time was that she was a singer and the co-host of the 700 Club back in the 90s. And I was able to pick her up from the airport and take her to an event she was speaking at. And then I took her back to the airport. So I got to spend quite a bit of one-on-one -on -one time with her. And I was struck by her story of how those three beliefs impacted her life in a significant way. So I wanna to read to you something that she wrote. She said, one morning, I was sitting on national television in my nice suit and inflatable hairdo. This was back in the 90s. Now, I know the 90s are coming back, but can I just veto the inflatable hairdos? Can we just all decide we're not going there, please? She says, that night, though, I was in the locked ward of a psychiatric hospital, and it was the kindest thing God could have done to me. The very first day in the hospital, the psychiatrist asked me, who are you? And she responded, she said, I'm the host of the 700 Club. That's not what I meant, he said. Well, I'm a writer, I'm a singer. That's not what I meant. Who are you? I don't have a clue, I said. And he replied, now that's right. And that's why you're here. Sheila continues with her story and she says, I measured myself by what other people thought of me. And that was slowly killing me. Before I entered into the hospital, some of the 700, class, 700 club staff, say that seven times fast, said to me, don't do this. You'll never regain any kind of platform and if people know you were in a mental institution and on medication, it's over. And I said to them, you know what? It's over anyway. So I can't think about that. I really thought in that moment that I had lost everything. My house, my salary, my job, everything. But I found life. I discovered at the lowest moment of my life that everything that was true about me, God knew. I discovered in the lowest moment of my life that everything that was true about me, God knew. Now you and I may not live into the extent of this story that Sheila experienced, but I think we can all resonate with that question of who are you? Well, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a wife, I'm a husband, I'm a business owner, I'm a teacher, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a public service person, I am a first responder, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a straight A student, I'm a college, whatever it is, 
I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what others think of me. And that is a catch-22. Because the more we chase those things and the more we accumulate those things, the more empty and unfulfilled we actually feel. It leaves us feeling emptier inside. And so what do we do with that? When our focus and our attention is there and we're realizing that it is not working for us, how do we handle that? What do we do? Well, the good news today is that Jesus experienced those very temptations. He knows exactly what it is like to be tempted to believe that I am what I do and I am what I have and I am what I think. And today we're gonna learn together how to shift our focus off of that and on to what Jesus shifted his focus and attention to so that we can live into this life of goodness and joy and freedom that Jesus came offering us. You see, when we're focused on those things, the light in our life dims. And we wanna turn the lights back on. And so we're gonna look together at Luke chapter four in verse one. Jesus has not started his ministry yet. And this is what he's experiencing. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hangry. It doesn't say that, but I am right now, because I have not had breakfast, and everybody keeps talking about food. I mean, picture what he is experiencing right now. 40 days he's been alone. He's been by himself. He has not had the influence or impact of other people. And he's, he's not eaten for 40 days. He's vulnerable. And at the same time, he is being sustained by the Spirit of God. Now, when I was younger and I would read this passage of Scripture, I would automatically picture Jesus speaking to like a human-like version of what the Scripture describes as the devil. And that's just not relatable to me because I don't know about you, but that has not been my experience. I was reading one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, and he describes it as the temptations being like thoughts or ideas or visions that ran through the mind of Jesus. Now that is something that I can relate a bit more to because there are things that run through my mind and if you knew about them, it would not be good. I mean, there's ideas, there's pictures, there's stuff. That's why we have to work. The scripture talks to us about taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. And I think this is likely what Jesus was experiencing. Now, I'm not saying there wasn't a physical entity there that's above my pay grade. But what I am saying is I can relate more to a thought that runs through my mind that I need to resist. A picture that comes to my mind that I need to resist. And I wonder if this is likely what Jesus was experiencing as well. So the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, what the, what the enemy, what the devil is going after here is if you are who you say you are, if you are who God says you are, do something about it. Work a miracle, use your power, prove it. I want you to do something about it. And Jesus resists and he doesn't give in. 
And then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so, you know, imagine all the things running through the mind of Jesus in this moment that he can have. He can have it all. All of the kingdoms, all of the world, all of the riches, all of the power, all of the authority. It can all be his in an instant. That is the temptation. And then the devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Now remember, the temple was at the center of all of the activity. That's where all of the people were going to be. It was where the largest crowd was going to be. And says, if you're the son of God, so he goes after his identity again. If you are who you say you are, if you are who God says you are, throw yourself down from there. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now of all three, this was the one that left me a little bit stumped. Like what in the world? But think about it. Jesus, who had not done anything in public ministry yet, goes up to the highest point of the temple throws himself off and all of a sudden angels catch him and he just kind of glides down to the ground. He would have immediate worship of the people and awe of the people. This was about what people think of me and popularity and prestige. You can have it in an instant if you just do that. And Jesus had all the access to it, all the power to make it happen. We see that as he lived out his life and his ministry. And I found myself wondering this week as I was in the scriptures, if Jesus had given in to even one of these temptations or one of these beliefs, how differently the story would have played out. He could have avoided, I think, a lot of suffering, if not all of the suffering, but he resisted the temptations of, I am what I do, I am what I have, and I am what others think of me. So what made it possible for Jesus to do this? I mean, if we're seeing that we know what it's like to be tempted to believe these things about ourselves, and we know that it sucks the life and the joy and the peace and the contentment out of our lives, how do we resist this? How do we shift our focus the way that Jesus did? In order to understand that, we just have to rewind a chapter in Luke. So we're going to go back to Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. And what we're going to discover is that Jesus focused on the affirmation of his father. He shifted his focus off of the temptation to have all the things and do all the things and be all the things. And he kept his focus on his father's affirmation. Here's what it says in chapter three. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son whom I love. 
with you, I am well pleased. Before he had performed a miracle, before he had taught and preached a sermon to the crowds, before he had gathered all of the followers, before he had upset the religious authorities and rulers of the day, he already had his father's love, affection, and affirmation. He didn't have to do anything or have anything or impress anyone in order to have the affirmation of his father. Now, the best news for you and for me today is that we are in Christ. And so everything we see in the life of Jesus and the way that he relates to his heavenly father is available to you and to me. We are adopted into the family of God. You are the heirs of all of the things that Jesus Christ had access to. And so when we see the Father speak these words of love and affirmation over Jesus before he began his ministry, you can put your name in there, my friend. Those are God's words, the Father's words to you. Before you do anything, before you accumulate anything, regardless of what others may think or say or post about you, God says to you, you are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. I love you, you are mine. You are my child and I love you and I am pleased with you. You are mine. Nothing changes that. Nothing from your past, nothing in the present moment, nothing about your future has any impact on that. You have all of my affirmation. Now, this is tough, I think, for us to really integrate and trust. I can remember several years ago being at a pastoral care appointment and sitting across from an individual and they said to me, Carissa, I think I have come to believe that God loves me, but I don't think God likes me very much. And that has stuck with me because I think more of us can relate to that than we care to admit. There's a part of us sometimes that thinks God in his goodness is required to love us. So of course God loves me, but I don't know that he really likes me. But friends, I'm here to tell you that the truest part of you, the part of you that is created in the image of God, that was knit together in your mother's womb, the part of you that Paul writes is hidden with Christ in God. Not only does God love you, but he affirms you and he likes you. Imagine your children for just a moment, whether they're your children that you gave birth to or they're somebody else's children that you treat like your children, but those, those kiddos in your life, you know they drive you crazy. You know you want to string them up by their toes sometimes. You don't like everything that they do, but you like them. Now, I don't think God wants to string us up by our toes. I think all of that stuff is in me as a very human mom. I grew up in the South and we used to say, <laughs> I'm not claiming that one. It may be my child misbehaving, but I don't claim them right now. Sometimes I think we think God thinks that way about us. I love them, but I don't wanna claim them right now. But that's not true. The Father in heaven loves you and affirms you. This is the foundation that we build our life on. And when we can keep our focus here, it lights up our life. 
and our relationships and our communities and our churches in a beautiful way. So what does it look like to live into and receive the affirmation of the Father? Sometimes there's a disconnect. We, we can know something in our head, but, but we don't know how to get it into our heart or into our gut. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like I know something theologically or I know something rationally. I've read about it. I've heard people teach me about it, but I don't know how to get it in my bones. I think what we see in Jesus is there was a surrender and an openness and a vulnerability as he received the affirmation of God. There's a surrender, a point in our lives over and over and over again if we're living this out because this is something that, this is a truth in my life, friends, that I have to come back to over and over and over again. I don't get it once and then move on. I have to come back to it day by day, sometimes moment by moment. So there's a surrender, a God help me understand this. Help me believe and trust this. Help me receive. And then there's an openness that feels a lot like vulnerability and it feels scary and it feels sometimes unnatural because we have been hurt and we have been wounded and we have been rejected by people. And sometimes we've been hurt and wounded by people who spoke on behalf of God or represented God. And so this can feel vulnerable to receive that affirmation of God in our life. And so for some of you today, the challenge is simply gonna be, can you take a moment today before you walk out those doors to receive the affirmation of God? To maybe open yourself up a little bit more, to surrender, it's gonna feel vulnerable. But I am trusting and I have been praying that God meets you there in that space and says to you, you are my child, whom I love. With you, I am pleased. So we receive, and then what we have to do is we have to resist. We have to resist these temptations that keep coming up over and over again. Now, I do wanna paint a picture for you of reality in my life, and that is that I recognize these things pretty early on, and I still recognize these things in my life. I could very easily be preaching this sermon to the mirror. Now, the good news is, is there's more freedom now than there was five years ago, and more freedom now than there was 10 years ago. And I have truth deeper in my bones today than I did 20 years ago. And I have tools now that I can implement and execute that help me light my life back up. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. And these aren't my ideas. These are things that we see lived out in the life and the ministry of Jesus. He resisted with truth and action, with scripture and with action. And we're gonna come back to the scripture at the end of the service, but right now what I wanna to talk to you about is how we resist with action. You see, when I begin to believe that I am what I do, when I focus on the productivity, I have to do more. I have to get more done and I can't stop. And I have to be the mom and the wife or for you, the dad and the parent, the coworker, the boss, the business owner, the spouse. I have to go and I have to get the degree and then I need to get another degree. And then I need to go out and I need to get a job and then I need to get a job somewhere else so that I cross pollinate all of the experiences. 
And then I need to go start a company because it's not good enough to just work for somebody else anymore. And I have to volunteer at all the places and do all of the things and I have to do 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 again some more. And it's exhausting. I don't know what that looks like in your world. I know what it looks like in mine. This is the one of the three that I struggle with the most. I struggle with all three of them and I think all humans do. But I think most of us, we probably have one that's a little harder for us than the others. It would be really easy for me to be a workaholic. I love to work. I love to produce. It makes me feel good about myself. And I tend to pick things that I am good at. Not because I'm good at everything, but because I'm smart about what I pick. It's just a vicious cycle. And I don't wanna stay trapped in it anymore. And so one of the ways that we resist this temptation to believe I am what I do is we pause. We rest, we stop. When we're feeling this compulsion to keep doing, to keep moving, to keep going, to keep checking things off of your lists, how many of you are like me and you love your lists? You've just got all the lists. I know, it feels so good to cross all the things off the list. But then that feeling of not enoughness pops back up again, I need more, I gotta do more. When we pause, it becomes a holy resistance to that temptation. And we see this in the life and the ministry of Jesus. He rested, he paused, he took breaks, he took naps, he ran from crowds, he said no to people. And so for me, this has looked like the last few years, Friday, as much as possible, I do not work. Even when I think I want to work, I don't do the work. Now, this is the work that, that gets me a paycheck kind of work. I still have basketball games and school pickup and all of the things. I mean, my kids are not like, oh, sorry, it's my mom's Sabbath today, so she can't bring me to my basketball game. <sighs> Maybe I should try that. It's kind of smart now that I think about it. Sorry, kiddo, no game for you tonight. This is my pause day. But just that window of time where I am not checking email, I'm not crossing things off of a list, I am not showing up in producing helps me to rest in the affirmation of God over my life. Not because of what I do, but because of who God says I am. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. It might not be a chunk of time on a day. It may be that you just turn work off, producing off at a certain point in the day and you allow yourself to pause and allow yourself to rest. Now, what I am gonna tell you is if you're like me a few years ago and you were addicted to all of this, it is going to feel like torture to pause. It is not gonna feel fun. It's gonna feel like someone has taken away your favorite stuffed toy and you are a toddler throwing a tantrum. But with time and with practice and by the grace of God, it becomes something that you look forward to. Something that restores your heart and your soul. I can promise you that. There is a reason why Jesus and our brothers and sisters have practiced this pause throughout the centuries. It's not easy to do, but it helps us resist this temptation. And then when I begin to believe that I am what I have, when I want all of the things, I want the nice house and the nice car and the nice clothes and I want all of our ch children to be dressed nice and pretty with little bows in their hair. And they never did that, so I had to let that one go a long time ago. Or, I don't know about you, but we're doing some projects on our house right now 
No matter how much the budget is, it has never felt like enough. No matter what the number is in my bank account, it has never felt like enough. I will work really hard at one job and I'll think, ooh, when I get to that level of income, then I can kind of feel good about where I'm at. And then I get there and then it's like, nope, I need more. I need more. I need more. I need more. And sometimes it's not even about I need more, but I want better than what the other people around me have. It's this kind of insatiable desire. And when we give in and give in and give in and give in, it just leaves us emptier and emptier and unfulfilled and discontent. And friends, I don't like this feeling. It sucks the life out of my life. And so what I've discovered is when I begin to feel this, when I notice it pop up in my life, when the temptation is there and all those thoughts are running through my head, a way that I resist is to give. To give and to give generously. Now sometimes we think that when we give, it's about the people that we're giving to the people who need or who are in lack. And that is a beautiful part of when we practice generosity. That's a beautiful outcome. But I think a big reason why Jesus practiced generosity and encouraged us to practice generosity is because it frees us up. When we're holding on tightly and trying to grasp more because it just doesn't feel like enough, and then we give, it, it, it releases us from some of that. It's counterintuitive. We want to hold on. But when we give, it, we practice this kind of holy resistance to this temptation of I am what I have. Sometimes it's not even necessarily about giving money away. Sometimes it's that I like my stuff and I don't want you to mess with my stuff or mess up my stuff. And so I'm going to hold on to my stuff tightly. And sometimes I've realized I just like need to let somebody borrow this. And if they're 10 and they're going to totally mess it up, then I maybe am too focused on it anyways. Sometimes. Sometimes the 10-year-old cannot have the stuff. So this requires a little bit of discernment. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And then when we begin to recognize the belief that I am what others think of me, it's time maybe to detach a little bit. Now, this one is not as cut and dry as the other two. So I'm gonna to speak to a couple different groups of you here. Some of us are on this end of the spectrum and it's really important to us that people like us, that they think highly of us, that they're not upset with us. And when they're upset or they're frustrated or they're worried or they're anxious, we need to make them feel better. Because if they don't feel good, it's hard for us to feel good. If they're not at peace, we can't be at peace. If they're fearful and anxious, we're going to feel fearful and anxious. So we're going to do all of the things to try to make them feel better. And God forbid somebody becomes upset with us or we let someone down or we don't meet their expectations. We resist when we detach from some of that. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. And then there are those of us on this end of the spectrum who it's not as important to us that everybody likes us or that they're always pleased with us because we know that's just not a reality. But we do want people to think we're competent. And we do want people to respect us. And we do want people to know who's in control and who's in charge. And if you're not sure, it's me. Kind of deal. And then you know, there's those of us who are along the spectrum. Now, 
because I'm being so vulnerable with you today, I don't really live so much on that end of the spectrum. It's important to me that people like me, but I would much rather someone respect me. And so I have to be really aware of how that's coming out and how that's manifesting in my life. I don't, I mean, I want you to think I'm a nice person, but I'd rather you think I'm competent than think I'm nice, those kinds of things. When we detach from what others think about us, it lights up our life. We experience freedom and joy that we didn't have before. It's like if you're overly focused on the compliments, this is the part of us that needs praise and compliments in order to feel good about ourselves. Or if we're someone that's wounded and hurt by criticism, even criticism that's not really criticism. So this comes up for me sometimes in my family when a kid or even my husband Ryan will say something in the house that's not critical, but I'm not feeling so good about myself, so I get defensive really fast. That's when I know I need to shift my focus back onto the unconditional love and the affirmation of God. And so if you find yourself on this end of the spectrum, it's really important to please all the people in your life and for them to be okay with you. And it's really hard for you when you know that they're disappointed in you. You're a beautiful, beautiful group of people who bring incredible gifts to the world. Part of the way that you practice this holy resistance we're talking about is disappointing people sometimes. Not meeting all of their expectations. Not solving all of their problems not stepping in and taking responsibility when they're not doing well or they're not feeling good. Sometimes the best way that you can love people in your life is allowing them to experience disappointment with you or with other people. Now this is hard for us because sometimes we've heard the message over and over and over and over again that we have to die to ourselves, die to ourselves, die to ourselves, die to ourselves. And that gets misused and misinterpreted. There's discernment here that takes place. Am I overly focused on keeping everybody happy? That's not dying to ourself. That's actually focusing on ourself, the part of us that says, I am what others think of me. That's the self that Jesus is inviting us to die to. And then for those of us who are on the other end of the spectrum or anywhere in between, sometimes the way we resist this idea of I am what others think of me is we serve quietly behind the scenes. We do good things when no one's watching, when no one's looking, when no one can thank us or appreciate us or acknowledge us. We serve quietly, hidden behind the scenes where only our Father in heaven knows. Those are some of the ways that we practice this resistance. So imagine with me what this could look like. If you were able to shift your focus off of the idea that I am what I do and I am what I have and I am what others think about me and live more of your time and your energy and your life into the affirmation of the Father, how would that free you up? What are the burdens you would be able to let go of and lay down? How could you find rest and joy and contentment, peace that maybe you haven't known before? It's available to all of us in Christ when we shift our attention to the affirmation of our Father. 
And so I wanna circle back with you now as we close. We talked about how Jesus resisted these temptations with truth and action. And we just talked about the action. And so maybe this week, you take a moment to pause, if that's your thing. Or maybe this week, you give generously, if you're sensing the Spirit inviting you to do that. Or maybe for you, it's about allowing someone to be disappointed in you or serving quietly behind the scenes. There's your action that you can take. But what's gonna happen right now is I want us to sit in the truth for a few moments, that our Father in heaven loves us and is pleased with us. And one of the ways that we do that is shifting our focus to truth, to scripture. And so as the worship team comes out, they're gonna lead us in a final song because the best worship is really simply us declaring the truth of God over our lives, reminding ourselves of the truth of God. Sometimes it's exactly from Scripture. Sometimes the lyrics are written from Scripture. But my prayer for us today is that we would surrender and open ourselves up to the love and the affirmation of God, that we could sit together in this truth for a moment and then out of that place, this week, maybe we pause, or this week, maybe we give, or this week, maybe we detach a little bit from the criticism or from the affirmation from other people, the compliments. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you that in your son, Jesus, we see what a relationship with you looks like that everything you say to Jesus is what you're saying to us. Help us trust, God, that we are loved. Help us trust, God, that we are affirmed, that you are pleased with us. And so, God, this morning, would you help us surrender? Would you help us open ourselves up? It feels vulnerable to us, God. It feels kind of scary. There's a lot of what-ifs going through our minds right now. Help us to trust you, God. Help us to shift our focus off of I am what I do and I am what I have and I am what others think of me and onto your affirmation of us. And help us to repeat this every day over and over again to make this a focus of our lives. Thank you, God, that you help us with this. You don't leave us to figure it out on our own. There's grace at work in our lives, even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.